Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back my good friend, Jeremy Roll. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. It was great to see you at the best ever conference about, about a month ago. How have you been? I've been well, thank you. Um, yeah, that was a great conference. Those guys always do a fantastic um, job. Um, and I've never been to Salt Lake City before, so it was definitely interesting to see. Yeah, it was great. And just for, for for the record, there was your conference before that. There was Intelligent that, Real Estate Investor, and I, I was at that conference too. So it was they were back to back. So it was yeah. Great. We we partnered with them. We were basically the first day of their conference, and they had their own conference, and they were just extremely helpful. And hope hopefully we're going to be back next year. I'm actually speaking to the organizer in a couple of weeks about it. That's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about. Uh, what's going on? Right after Best Ever Conference, we had the unfortunate news of two banks collapsing rather quickly. And that triggered a lot of concerns and a lot of flight of capital from the small banks to big banks, and even more money moved from small banks into U.S. treasuries. Uh, so I'm just curious, just your thoughts on the whole situation. It's a very interesting situation. And um I, you know, now it's been a few weeks, so we don't need to get all the details. I think most people by now know what's going on because it was so impactful that everyone probably researched it. But what I will say is that if you have not researched what happened in the 80s um, in a kind of a similar fashion with interest rate increases and stuff, um, I strongly recommend you take a look at it. Um, people, whenever I say to people, you realize that the probability is that these are not the only bank failures, right? And a lot of people are don't really have an opinion on it yet. And I think it's very important to kind of understand what's most likely to come. And um, in from my research back in the 80s, there were over 1,200 bank failures plus com combined with like private funds, private individuals providing capital like shadow banking, over 2,000 uh, companies failed. And um, so when I see the two banks have failed, they were very important banks and relatively large banks. But this is not the end of it from a probability perspective. It would be highly unlikely that those are the only two banks that are going to go down. So what I think personally is going to happen is that we're going to wake up one day and another bank is going to go down or a noteworthy one enough that's going to go down that the media is going to cover it. They're going to cover it nationally. And then there's going to be a little more fear and that's going to happen again. And, you know, it's definitely not the end of it, unfortunately. Um, so we're already seeing now that credit is tightening tremendously very, very quickly. Banks are very concerned about deposits uh, flight, which is already happening and, and may continue to happen or get worse if we have more banks fail, which is very likely. And so there seems to be no doubt that um, lending is going to be much lower in volume and much more stringent in the terms uh, and conditions. And um, that, as far as real estate investing goes, is going to make it more challenging for sure in the coming months. And you know, there's an argument to be made that that'll either reduce demand on the investor side or reduce prices in order to conform to similar returns that investors are looking for. So we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, that's a great commentary, kind of the natural logical reaction to uh, what's going on. Uh, the smaller banks are forced to increase interest rates to attract more deposits. Uh, obviously, it would be very beneficial to small banks if the FDIC increased the limit 
and it's time to do that, right? If they push the limit from a quarter million to 500,000, it'd be a great service for smaller banks. Unfortunately, FDIC, Fed, they serve different purposes. Uh, it's kind of a funny, I, I like to, when we talk about Fed, I just like to talk about the founding of Fed. Fed founding of Fed was uh, basically representation of the cartel of big banks. Yeah. So uh, they still in some degree, even though it's a central bank, they, but they serve interest to the bigger banks and the bigger banks don't want the FDIC limit lifted because uh, they're too big to, to fail. That FDIC limit is a lower concern for them. Yeah. And they have, they're seeing flight of capital to them and the small banks are struggling. They're forced to raise interest rates, which in turn will force them to charge higher rates on the loans and underwrite uh, uh, credit, obviously, way tighter. So it's kind of a, exactly what you said. Um, anyway, what do you think is is, is coming? Uh, so obviously some more failures of, of banks. Uh, the, the I was reading the other day, just, just a quick um, summary, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this, that there is about 1.3 trillion rolling over the next, this following in 2025, next three years of rolling debt. 1.3 trillion over three years, about 400, Plus billion per year, I don't. I don't think it's all real estate, but it's a mix of real estate combined with some corporate debt. The number is so gigantic, uh, and uh, all that money was borrowed when there was a zero policy, zero interest rates, and now it's a big problem. Yeah, so it's actually interesting because if you look at some charts, let's take commercial real estate because commercial real estate is getting, I think, the majority of the press coverage, and. And honestly, to an extent, for good reason, office space in some very large cities is just down tremendously as far as demand. Vacancies are way up. Some of these office You're buildings- You're referring to office, right? Specifically yeah, to office for the most part. Some of them are going to have foreclosed. Interestingly also is that a lot of suburban offices are actually okay. So you really have to kind of segment it and understand what's going on. But if you look at the charts, the amount of debt that was rolling. So it is true. You're going to read that a record amount of debt is rolling. That's true, factually. But it's not that much more than what was rolling last year, right? And so I think it's just making really good headlines. I think the challenge we have is obviously the ability to roll that debt because of everything we just talked about, right? So if everything else, all things being equal, was fine, the fact that we had records amounts of debt rolling wouldn't make the headlines, right? Because it wasn't such a huge difference. It's now that we're going to have that challenge of, you know, of course, some of the challenge is going to be that if the banks reduce liquidity and the loan to the values come down, which has already happened and is a, a natural reaction in this case to reduce risk for the banks, that's gonna obviously um, result in some properties that may have been refinanceable to lo no longer be refinanceable, right? Um, so so um, that's clearly gonna be a challenge. I think the writing's already on the wall that that's gonna be a challenge. now. I do want to point it, one thing out to everybody. It's unbelievable the amount of intervention that the Fed has done in the last since 2008. And it's changed the dynamic of being able to forecast what's going to happen because you could take all, Mike and I can sit here for two hours and brainstorm everything that may happen with like perfect data and come to the most highly probable conclusions. And then all of a sudden the Fed comes in tomorrow, does something different, and the whole thing's, you know, just complete white slate, like just start from scratch in terms of the equation, right? So let me give you an example. In terms of quantitative easing, the Fed may choose to target um, commercial real estate uh, debt and may start to buy it, which you know could uh, increase liquidity, may start to guarantee it or back it. 
similar to how they did with tuition and uh, the student loans. And that could cause much more origination as a result because risk goes way down for anyone who's originating it, right? Whether it's banks, private parties, et cetera. So there is some stuff the Fed can do to counteract this, and we're going to have to see how it plays out. But as it stands today, without any of that intervention and not knowing what's going to come up, it definitely looks like it's going to be a very challenging time, uh, especially for commercial real estate. I think there, there's going to be a huge challenge. And by the way, there's already been record numbers of small business bankruptcies. And there's also a record amount of subprime auto loan delinquencies. There's a lot going on right now. But um, I think there's going to be a huge challenge for a lot of small businesses to keep going. There's been a lot of unprofitable companies that have just, you know, these zombie companies have just gone along for years. Man, oh, good Lord. I, I wish I had the statistic in front of me. It was unbelievable the amount of publicly traded unicorn startups that still today that went public in the last, say, four or five years that still today are burning through money. Like they're at, most of them are still at a loss. And the big ones, you know, all of the Ubers of the world. And I don't know what's going to happen with those because they have to roll their own financing too, right? They just have to kind of keep the party going on a, on a loss. And so we're going to have to see. In the end of the day, um, as much as I hate the, the concept of intervention rather than the free market, I do think that the government's going to step in and intervene again in some fashion and is going to minimize or reduce some of the all these effects. But that's impossible to forecast. That's the challenge. Yeah, uh, great wisdom. And I happen to agree with you. Uh, Fed is maintaining their face uh, and they are still uh, talking about fighting inflation and raising interest rates and not doing any easing this year. Uh, in my opinion, just like yours, they're going to have no choice. They're going to have so much pain, uh, so many cracks in the ice. They're going to have no choice and start easing sooner rather than later. Not only easing, start implementing some of these uh, QE and related uh, strategies. Uh, if I remember, even from uh, the the time that uh, Silicon Valley and uh, Signature Bank failed, the Fed had to undo what they did in their balance sheet tightening over a very short amount of time. So they tried to do QT, and then over a very short amount of time, they they had to provide the liquidity necessary to basically just go back to where they were pre-tightening. Yeah, but this is a very important point, and this is what's so difficult to predict because they're actually still continuing down the QT with what they've been rolling off, okay? The assets they've been rolling off, which actually includes some of the mortgage-backed securities, okay? the On the other side of the table, so they're targeting, right? Because on the other side, of the, they're opening up liquidity here on this side, right? I don't know if you can see my hand, but then they're tightening on this side. And then in effect, to Mike's point, is that it's even. But the problem is that as an investor, you have to pay very close attention to what's actually getting liquidity and what's actually still tightening because their argument is that they're still tightening. And, and in some ways, they are. They're just ignoring the other piece of it when they say that, right? Um, and they can they can theoretically increase interest rates at the same time as making credit more available, technically, right? So I'm just saying they could do all these things, and that's what we have to watch out for, and that's what's very difficult to forecast. They might try to achieve that type of balance to be very targeted to avoid major crises while still trying to rein in uh, employment and other things to reduce the inflation. And that's what's going to be just fascinating to watch, honestly. Yeah, that's right. And all the all powerful Fed, it's kind of a, uh, we've gotten, the US economy is just so dependent on a central bank action. It's almost unreal that uh, we we are a large, uh, we're world, we're, we are world leading, uh, still world leading country, although 
over time it looks like China is stepping on our toes, but in the in the short run we're still we're still the leader, and we're heavily dependent on um, a group, a small group, fairly small group of um, academicians, or, 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 uh, effectively making the decisions where the country is going to go, and uh, it's almost counterintuitive because the capitalism is based on uh, free enterprise. But what Fed is doing is, is central planning. If you think about it, as much as uh, the policy is a central plan, I mean, it is a plan and they're executing on it. And the problem with that is uh, at times they don't know. They, they literally don't know what's going to happen and they're forced to take action and, and they're moving, uh, uh, they're pushing buttons and, and pulling levers that are of gigantic proportion and they can put economy in a terrible uh, downspin uh, before they realize it. And, and it's unfortunate that uh, we have to be sort of uh, so much dependent on, on intervention of Fed to solve problems. And it seems to be getting bigger and bigger with every cycle of problems. That's exactly right. And so what, why that's so challenging. So what, how that impacts me as a full-time investor, passive investor, is that I used to be able to take past history and kind of try to apply probabilities of what was going to happen in the future assuming very little or no intervention, you know, a long time ago. Um, and if you put the time and work into that and really did the homework, you could reduce your risk and at least also reduce your risk of avoiding major landmines. But now um, with the Fed picking and choosing where the quantitative easing is going and not and all this, it's, you know, it's almost like yeah, it, you could get lucky depending on what the Fed does or doesn't do, as opposed to actually doing the work and understand what's going on in the underlying surface. And that's very frustrating probably for you, but also for me, for sure. Um, but I continue to do the same thing and just try to do my best at trying to avoid uh, the landmines. Yeah, agreed. All we can do, it's almost, um, uh, as we're trying to provide market updates, becoming more and more challenging what we do know it's uh it's data dependent and data is in their ears right that's pretty clear two uh they're almost done uh tightening at least on the surface right and then uh whether they're going to ease or not that, that's speculative but the only thing that we can predict is some sort of a short duration rate so it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen with long duration rate and there's yes. a big unknown and the impact of long duration rate uh a gigantic on the economy. And that's that's the big concern is that uh ZERP to five percent over one year, uh after years of, of zero interest rate policy is just so dangerous and nobody knows exactly what it can do. This is unprecedented times for multiple reasons. It's like this never happened before, number one. Number two, uh the Fed response is highly uh unknown, very difficult to predict. The risk uh light is on, it's getting redder, uh kind of brighter and brighter. And uh, what do investors do? And that's why a lot of people are sitting on sidelines and just waiting for something really exciting to happen, but it's unclear what what it is. Yeah, what's, I, I think it's also fascinating watching the stock market, even though I don't invest in it, I haven't since 2007. The um, What's fascinating to me is that it's very clear from the levels that the stock market's at right now and how it behaves that it, it's now gotten almost accustomed to, almost like a Pavlovian response, literally accustomed to the Fed stepping in and propping things up. And so it's biased towards the upside. And that's why everyone's expecting a recession at the moment, but it hasn't gone down as much as you would anticipate under these conditions yet until the earnings truly hit, I think. Um, and it's 
normally the stock market is very forward thinking, but it's also forward thinking that the government's going to step in and help it, you know, help the market. And so even the market is kind of biased towards yeah, the Fed just going to help us. And we don't know what's really going to happen. So we'll have to see. But it's even very difficult to forecast the market for that reason, too. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I will concur with you. I'm not a big fan of the stock market for the reasons that it is uh, highly speculative. Um, and it is uh, not necessarily based on fundamentals. It's, it's the mood of the day, unfortunately. And obviously, obviously Warren Buffett uh, type of investors of the world uh, struggle to find great deals in an environment where uh, there's a lot of speculation. But yeah. uh, let, let's go back to real estate. So what do you think is going to happen? We're we already seeing distressed deals. We're already seeing distressed sellers. Uh, not necessarily distressed assets, but distressed sellers. Yeah. Uh, so assets may be performing well, and that's creating opportunity for the buy side. Um, in theory, uh, if you buy today and the interest rates cyclically on a high, at a high level, you could always refi down when the rate yes. cycle back down. So from that perspective, it feels like already good time to buy as long as you can get a bargain. But the, the challenge is uh, the bargain is only going to happen in distressed seller situations, but they're happening. So if the volume picks up, do you, do you see a lot more uh, interesting deals coming in? Or as we see more and more cracks in the ice, Fed will capitulate and get aggressive. And I guess a lot depends on Fed, data and Fed, right? I mean, it's at the end of the day. That's right. So there's a couple of things I have top of mind for this topic. First is that um, you have to keep a close eye on unemployment. And you have to keep a close eye on inf inflation, right? And those are two very important metrics to understand, to understand what's potentially what the Fed may do in the next few months in the short term, to your point. Um, but, I, you know, real estate moves very slowly. It normally takes a couple of years to correct. The buyers and sellers typically have a very big, big bid-ask spread. It takes a long time to come in. There have been some transactions, still very low volume. I don't think we're there yet. Um, I also think that um, there's two wild cards to me. Number one is um, the possibility of a recession. And if there is a recession, which I personally think there's going to be, depending on the severity of the recession, the one thing that people aren't really talking about much, which is really surprising me still, we're now recording this in April, is the possibility of rents going down depending on the asset class. And the fact that the matter is for multifamily, for example, in certain markets that tend to be more volatile, um, rents have already started to come down. And so um, and normally, when you get the more volatile markets, they typically are first to move, right? Just like San Francisco home prices go down first and everything falls, it's the same idea. And so, because um, it's the most inflated. So, um, so like, I think that the possibility of having lower revenues in conjunction with pretty strong inflation expenses is a big risk going into the second half of the year for investors. And that's why I think that buying right now still might be a little premature because that implies a lower NOI to building you may have purchased today at the end of the year. That's my number one concern right now in terms of is it doesn't make sense to get in from a value asset value perspective. But the other thing is negative leverage. Um, I, I got to tell you, as a limited partner, passive investor, um, I'm starting to see some positive leverage deals. But if I had to guess, probably I'm still seeing 70% negative leverage, 30% positive leverage. Just complete guess, not factual. I haven't run analysis. And that is completely nonsensical to me. Like to think that we are at the right time to buy in negative leverage period for an investor doesn't make sense. It just, what that tells me kind of objectively is that we haven't had the proper reset yet because 
And, and by the way, now some investors are looking at the short-term treasuries, right? I actually just bought some myself yesterday, I think, again, 5.07, I think it was. I buy them on secondary and it was like four years, four years, uh, four months remaining. And so I've actually had more and more investors come to me now and look at that 5% and say, you know, I looked at a deal, but then I looked at the 5% that I can get right now and there was no risk premium and I'm just not going to do it. If people are starting to wake up to that a little bit, I think a lot of investors don't understand or don't pay attention to negative leverage. Um, but it's one of the most important indicators for me right now, trying to keep me grounded. Um, and so um, historically, you would expect that to be a very positive spread before we'd hit the bottom and hit the really great timing. Now, with some distressed deals, can that happen? For sure. you know. But in the average stuff that I'm seeing, which is not distressed at all yet, and most of the deals I'm seeing have not come from a distressed place yet, and that's not happening to either at all or to a very much extent. Like, I mean, I'm talking about most deals I see at most have 30 to 40 basis points positive leverage. Um, so that's a very important indicator I'm watching. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, just so I want to clarify the negative leverage for the audience simply means the delta between, I guess, the cap rates that they're paying versus the interest rates that they're borrowing at. So the yes. negative leverage simply means they're paying a cap rate of, say, five and a half percent. And the mortgage rate uh, is six and a quarter. Uh, so it's a negative 75 basis points negative leverage. Yeah. yeah. Can I just can I just expand on that for people who don't don't understand? So it's there's I want to clarify because imagine you're buying a building all cash. That's the cap rate, right? For the, for the potential cash flow. And so if you're buying a building at a six percent, I'm just gonna use easy number, six percent cash flow return. And then you're borrowing at a 7% interest rate to buy that building, you're in negative leverage. You're literally paying more out in interest at a rate than you are earning a return. Normally, it's the other way around. You're leveraging the bank's money at a positive spread to create additional value and additional returns, right? And that's why people take loans in real estate. But when you see everything happening at negative leverage, like it had been for the past year or two, from, for the most part, and currently still is today for majority of what I'm seeing, that tells me that we're not at the reset of a cycle yet. Agreed. I totally agree that people are paying too much for these assets. Uh, ultimately, the price needs to come down to create positive leverage, right? Either interest rates have to cycle back down or the price yes. has to cycle back down. So, or both in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, if interest rates go down a lot, that could create the positive leverage, right? It could be one of the levers that causes that doesn't necessarily have to be price. But as we stand today, it's just very tough to jump in into a negative leverage scenario, which is the majority of scenarios I'm seeing. Well, one thing that these high interest rates uh, are doing there um, certainly hurting employment, even especially in the real estate market. I had a discussion with a friend, uh, he's a broker in LA, and he said they have no inventory, no product. He has nothing to list. He's got no. Basically, people don't want to sell because they can't buy because the interest rates on a buy are much higher than if they sell the existing property. It's a weird uh, environment. We haven't seen this in a long, long time but it's hurting the uh, desire of folks to move. And usually spring and summer is when they are supposed to list and move to just people choosing not, not to do that. So that's residential side. And commercial, obviously, uh, is not transacting for other reasons. So folks are looking for uh, revenue streams and they can't get it. And, and that's maybe that's, again, that's an objective of Fed to, to increase unemployment, to force uh, uh, layoffs and, uh, going back to the negative leverage uh, situation. So uh, I guess the only reason people would do that is that they strongly believe that interest rates have to cycle down sooner rather than later. 
Well, there's another reason to be fair, because I, I invest in stabilized stuff. If you're a heavy value add investor and you're, you know, a lot, I, I've always yeah, heard. And a value 20, of course, yes. And over 20 years of investing, I cannot tell me the number of times I've heard someone say, I don't even care what I'm paying because I'm going to increase the rents $3 tomorrow. That's the market rate, right? I mean, I'm using exaggeration. Um, and then they don't care about the cap rate as much. That actually may make sense for them, but it's more speculation like we talked about. And I personally think the wrong time to speculate for a, a slew of reasons is in the middle of a cycle reset at the end of a cycle, right? That's from a risk perspective. So um, so that's what's challenging about that. But there are two reasons. There's that reason and what you mentioned about interest rates coming down. And by the way, I think it's reasonable for people to expect interest rates to come down over time and possibly even in the medium term, I would call it, you know, past the next year or so. So um, I think that's a, media, a, a reasonable assumption. I also think you made a very important point towards the beginning of this podcast, which is that, um, yeah, buying at the high of interest rates is always helpful, right? Because you can, re depending on the flexibility of your loan and the terms, you can refi into a lower rate later on. Um, and you, when you buy at a high interest rate, you're buying at a low price typically, right? So you don't want to do the opposite. So from that perspective, timing could make sense. But from these other indicators, it also makes sense to wait unless you find, of course, as we both know, there's always really unique deals out there. And um, that still makes sense at any time, really. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy, for clarifying. The value-add deals are uniquely different if you are somehow dealing in an environment where rents are well below uh, the market or you have other value-add opportunities where you can increase uh, rents by virtual forced appreciation work. So that, that's a separate discussion, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so again, we're kind of running out of time, but any final thoughts? Um, so parking cash in treasuries is an obvious no-brainer right now. It's to the point where... We actually bank with Signature Bank, and, and <laughs> Signature Bank failed. So they've been taken over. They see this since they've been sold, and uh, now there's a new uh, uh, new owner, and that's that's wonderful. But we're now vividly aware that we got to move the money out of accounts where you have two hundred fifty thousand dollar limit. So Treasuries is an obvious choice, right? You just park the money in Treasuries through a brokerage account, and uh, you have that safety. So yep. that's an obvious solution. Uh, we're executing, a lot of people are executing that. Beyond that, obviously looking at these really, really great distressed uh, opportunities when they surface, just sitting ready with uh, ammunition, loaded gun, ideally. And if you see a great yep. deal, you should be ready to, to, uh, to go. Yep. What else can folks do? Or there's really nothing else. It's just, it's, it's that time where uh, uh, you, you the cash may be more valuable than the assets if the assets are falling down in price, in essence, right? Yes, and so... There's one more thing you can do, but it's a whole different discussion for a different day, which is yeah, you can invest in uh, a, a type of business, um, not necessarily real estate, where you don't have to worry about the asset prices decreasing. Um, and that hopefully, you know, that that you believe has a good probability of doing well during a recession. And so um, I'm just going to give a very quick example because I'm doing this and I just made an investment last month, which is I've been investing in ATM machines um, that have surcharge fees when people use them, the private ones since 2008. I went through the last recession. And pretty well with those machines, expecting to go through pretty well again this time. And those things are literally computers. They're like a bill feeder, a screen, a keypad, a case. They go to all, they depreciate to almost zero, like the residual value, the actual liquidation value in several years is almost zero. So I don't I don't care if that is worth less more quickly. I care about the predictability of the transactions and the predictability of the cash flow and recouping my initial investment and making a profit, right? So in that case, I can look at stuff like that where I don't have to worry about the asset value. But in most cases, you are looking at an asset value. And to your point, you have to go into unique deals right now to create padding 
in case the asset value goes down. That's kind of the way to look at it at the moment, right? In case it goes down for the reasons we talked about today, all the many potential reasons we talked about today. So to your point, Mike, it, it is mostly on the sidelines, except for unique opportunities, treasuries, and something that we don't have to worry about an asset uh, value going down. Yeah, I appreciate the clarification. I've certainly heard of, of the ADM investments. We don't do any of that, but it is a separate, it is a interesting strategy with uh, no value on the ad, very little. Once the machine five or six years down the road, you just got to get enough cash flow out of it so that it's worth, uh, I guess, <laughs> it's almost like over five, six years, it needs to pay you the right interest and, and fully amortize the, uh, the investment. That's exactly right. And that's just... I was just using that because I'm familiar with because I'm investing in 15 years, so I'm familiar with it. But there are probably other types of similar investments where you don't have to worry about the asset prices depreciating. And that is the key, because as, as everyone's heard here, you and I are both concerned about asset values going down due to distress and for the other reasons we talked about, which will create opportunities that are worth jumping on. But I think that the opportunities are going to be more plentiful going further into the second half of this year and likely next year. Yeah, that I'm in agreement. We do some some of these niche strategies. Uh, you, you you may be aware we do business with discount lots and we loan the money and they buy land lots and they sell as receivables five, six times. It's a whole lot better than used car business. They don't have to repossess. They never transfer the title. And this is an example of a niche strategy. And we 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 had a call with them today and they just this cranking. People are still buying land and they still want their piece of American dream and they go use it for recreational needs, go dirt bikes or shoot guns or wreck the camping ground. It seems to be kind of still a good business, even uh, they're not interest rate sensitive at all. And anyway, but I, I'm in agreement with you. It's some kind of niche strategy or combined with the uh, safety of the treasuries or are really opportunistic. We have an interesting deal coming up um, in the shopping plaza space where a distressed REIT, um, a publicly traded REIT has to sell. And we're working with the operator uh, who's locked it up at a, at a great price. And uh, it's almost amazing uh, that that whole sector is a, a bit disliked. But yes. the fact that they're not building in them anymore, the, 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 the new supply is not coming forward. So if you get a great location, great asset, then you can uh, value add, lease up empty space and sell out parcels. You could get phenomenal cash flows and great returns. But it's a very niche business. And like you said, it's a niche strategy not a lot of people are doing. And if you're going to talk to somebody, why would you want to buy a shopping plaza going into potential recession? Well, because if they're well located, uh, what's really amazing and, 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 and fascinating is that um, uh, people still prefer brick and mortar over e-commerce. And uh, what, what, what's also really amazing, some of the e-commerce uh, operators moved forward and opened brick and mortar because they're more profitable than the e-commerce. The returns and everything else. They don't make as much money. It's almost uh, amazing how e-commerce uh, bid off a, 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 part, a market share, but they're not doing it profitably. And they, they won the brick and mortar operation together with a mobile app combined with the e-commerce website to all work, work together to get more consumer dollars, dollars flowing into their brand. Yeah, I want to say I've invested in many retail strip centers. I'm currently still invested in many realtors over the past 20 plus years. And the key to that at this timing, um, well, there's a lot of different keys, but one of the keys is that certain tenants do really well during a downturn and some of them don't do well at all during it. So just a very quick example, furniture stores typically don't do well during an economic downturn. It's usually not a need. People won't be moving as much necessarily and they certainly won't be looking to buy fancy furniture as much. So that's just an easy example, right? Big capital expenditure. 
On the flip side, is Domino's Pizza really going anywhere from that strip mall during no. a downturn? I don't think so, right? Uh, do, is a dollar store? Oh, general. That strip? Okay, well, these, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm currently invested in a strip center in Texas that has a, a dollar tree. It's not going anywhere. In fact, it's going to pick up some business, truly. So you have to really analyze the tenant base. Um, and in some cases, the tenant base will make sense. And of course, diversification of tenants is really important too. Yeah, I appreciate that commentary. Exactly correct. That, that is, um, it's almost like this. When COVID hit, the the two worst uh, asset classes look like, uh, well, there are three of them. And um, one was office, right? People stopped going to the office. But office didn't feel like it was going to suffer as much because the leases were still being paid. And yet hospitality, people stopped traveling. So for a while, hospitality looked absolutely horrible. And then the shopping plazas too, people started ordering everything delivered. Right, but uh, the shopping plazas survived because they had long-term leases. They had quality quality tenants. They you know things reopened. People still went shopping, but the one sector that didn't really recover is office hospitality is doing well, especially well located hospitality. And the shopping plazas are doing well, and if e- e- people do still um, go buy their goods and services, the haircut places, the the nail salons, they're not going away. And in the recession. You still need to cut your hair, whether you like it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I mean, without getting into too much detail, during COVID even, I can tell you that I live in California, but I have a lot of investments in Texas. And in Texas, the strip malls were open extremely quickly um, in terms of the COVID restrictions compared to California, where a lot more retail businesses go out of business. The smaller mom and pop shops, because they weren't allowed legally to reopen by the the state uh, government. Whereas in Texas... The, the revenue levels um, didn't really, I mean, they missed a bit of a beat, but compared to California, completely different. So location could be very important too, just from that perspective. I know that's kind of a bit of a unicorn situation, so to speak, but it was fascinating watching that too. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth. Even in this environment, I'm in New York, it's a very similar story. It was it was, it was was not only that, it, it got a little ridiculous when you couldn't go to a restaurant without uh, the proof of uh, COVID vaccination. It was, it was right. some of these rules were just so crazy. And um, anyway, the big cities, the the big states, uh, mostly blue, obviously, have have had uh, uh, centralized controls, centralized authoritarian, almost authoritarian rulemaking, and, and many of these rules were not. They proved to be completely wrong. They were, they, 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 it's to the point where, I don't know if you, if you remember this, we're getting off a tangent, we got to wrap up. But we have the disgraced Governor Cuomo of New York who was teaching people like he was the Tsar of New York. He was he was literally teaching people uh, what to do, what not to do, everything else, while he collapsed I mean, he, 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 for all other bad things that he has done. But when, when a politician or a government figure starts teaching people how to live their lives, there is a danger, though. They they well, have no moral authority, no actual uh, the intelligence to do that. Because most of the politicians, and I mean this with all due respect, most of the politicians uh, are, are unfortunately not necessarily uh, the uh, sharpest cats out there. They're great speakers, but they are not necessarily uh, people to teach you how to run, how to live your life. Yeah, and unfortunately, obviously, in some of the decisions they make, they're calculated based off of what may benefit them. And so that's obviously the, always the danger. I will say this, though, the good news is that, yeah, I believe it was yesterday or the day before, but it was this week, uh, President Biden actually ended uh, pandemic emergency status in the country um, from like an official perspective. Thank God. 
the pandemic pandemic was over. Well, it's not I mean not completely over, but it's it, it, this pandemic. Uh, and I have to say this: if, I don't know if you ever watched a movie called um, Outbreak. And I haven't. No, it's an old movie, but uh, with Dustin uh, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, and and it was an and it was an outbreak where people literally everyone who got infected was dying, right? If it was like this, yes, that'd be legitimately you know reasons to shut down the country, but we were not dying the way so it was treated as if it was like an outbreak with everyone who gets sick, like like a you know uh, in the Middle Ages, what was it? Uh, what was it called? Uh, Black Death. Um, the uh, yes, yeah, the plague. Yeah, plague. Pretty much, if you got if you got it, you had a very high probability of dying. COVID was, you know, for all people, it was a big risk, but not for everyone, obviously. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jeremy, thank you. Uh, a lot of great wisdom. Appreciate you always. Uh, love this conversation to continue. We need to do another episode soon enough, but this one, we got to wrap up because we're past the time. Sounds good. Well, thank you for those of you who are still listening here. We appreciate it. Hopefully it was helpful for your listeners. Thank you kindly. And as always, how would folks get a hold of you? How would they reach out? if they Oh, want yeah, to sure, yeah. You? Anyone is welcome to reach out to me. Happy to help anyone any way I can. My email is the easiest way to reach me, which is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. Hopefully this is helpful for those who are listening. I think it'll be a great episode. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.